Happy birthday to oh, us. <laughs> Happy bum, bum. birthday to us. <laughs> Happy birthday, dear podcast. Because we're a year old now. Happy birthday. Woo! We survived. I haven't gotten canceled yet. Well, thanks for sticking with us this long. Happy birthday to the podcast. Yay, we made it. What are we talking about today, Jackie? I am so excited for this one because <laughs> we're going to talk about history. <gasps> the well, history of the romance genre. All right. Yeah, so let's go I ahead. would love to hear about that. I know you would <laughs> so much. <laughs> all right, let's go ahead and let's dive right in. Hey there, romance nerds! Welcome to another episode of Raging Romantics. I'm Jen. I'm Jackie. We are librarians at Northern Onondaga Public Library, and we are also romance nerds. We are going to be talking about anything and everything having to do with romance. So with that being said, sometimes our material will be a little too sensitive for younger readers. If you feel the need to wait until they go to bed, we will be here for you. Now. Without further ado, are you ready, Jen? Oh, I've been ready, Jackie. All right. Let's rage. Hey, Jackie. Yes. What did one boat say to the other? What? Are you up for a little romance? <laughs> you get row? Because you're going to row? Oh, I was trying to think of where that was going to go, and I did not go where I thought I was going to go. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. That was beautiful. Applause for a whole year's worth of gen jokes. And God, what did you guys do before these? <sighs> Probably had sanity, unlike us. Yeah, that's fair. It's been a long day again, but, but not deprived. as bad as last time. This is true. They were deprived of your puns, so. Like, yeah, so already life is so much better. Yes. Let's dive into some romance. I know, because you have been excited about this since we decided to do this months ago. Yes. Well, okay, so secret, not so secret story. Yeah. Jen and I actually started, started, wow, that was a pocket con, have it, yeah. <laughs> I really wanted <laughs> we to. We started the podcast. <laughs> do you want to redo that? Yes. <laughs> we started the podcast um, as a webcast on YouTube. Because we were bored and had nothing, well, quarantine. We wanted something to do. It's not even so much we wanted something to do. I don't want to make it sound like we're looking for busy work. We yeah. had, we really loved We were romance. back in the library. We weren't quite in the library-ish. It yeah, kind of the weird. library was still close to patrons at this time. And so Jen and I didn't have any of our normal programs going on. Jen usually usually drives the pop-up truck, and she didn't have that going on. Really and a lot of good romance came out last so year. So much. And there was nobody to talk about it with because exactly. we didn't have our book club. And Jen and I, our colleagues, got really sick of us talking about yeah. it with them. I was told I could no longer give any recommendations to any of my coworkers Lame. because there were too many. And <laughs> apparently they did not like hearing about Spurs before it was popular. Read faster, people. <laughs> okay. No, no, just kidding. But seriously. Um, so we started as a webcast. and Not our best idea. We lasted two episodes. I'm going to say that was Jackie's idea, not mine. Was, I was not thrilled. Was. I was really mad at you. Jen from the beginning was like, can't we just do a podcast? So yeah. I was like, nah, let's be a YouTube star. Well, so since that's not available anymore, and this is our anniversary episode. Yeah, what what year. better way to kick off season two of the podcast than with... An overview of the history of romance. I think it sounds like something we already did, but it was a bad attempt the first yes, time. it was very bad. So I like that we're redoing it for our first 
hopefully our first of many anniversaries. Knock on we'll wood. See. It's we'll full see. wood, but it's still knocked on I it. All right. Well, that's enough banter. Let's go ahead. Let's dive right in because I have a lot of history to yeah, go through. Yeah, I don't want to take up too much of your time because Jackie has done nine pages of notes and she is super excited <laughs> for every <laughs> single <laughs> word. <laughs> and keep in mind that I am a historian. I'm yeah. a medievalist. I have done a lot of historical research. Mm-hmm. I'm going to focus on Western literature because that's my specialty. Mm-hmm. I don't know enough to talk with authority about Eastern literature. Um, so we're going to focus mainly on Europe and America. Okay. Um, once America's a real thing. <laughs> Welcome to another history lesson with Jackie. Take a seat, grab a snack, and a beverage because it's going to be a lot of history. We're going to be archaeologists here for a minute, okay? I'm a history nerd. I'm going to try to keep this as short and sweet as possible. Spoiler <laughs> alert, it's not. <laughs> Hopefully Jen's eyes don't glaze over. I like history. Okay. I really wanted a history degree. It just didn't work out for me. I still would love to go back to college to get one. So That's it's great. not just Jackie. Jackie just has the credentials. I'm just here like I got kicked out of teaching school let's let's go right with it so jen the history of romance as a genre oh boy a lot of people think it started with the bodice ripper in the 1970s they couldn't be further from the truth they are so wrong yeah before we dive in though let's just revisit a modern criteria for what makes a romance novel jen so modern it has to be a happy ever after or a happy for now and the relationship has to be central to the story. Yes. And even that is much more broader than it would have been a couple of years ago. Because yeah. now we have people like Nora Roberts and J.R. Ward who are killing off heroines. Yeah. So it's very much like kind of a happy. It's like a bittersweet for now. Yeah. But I'm still going to. There's been a question of whether or not to include those stories. I am going to argue for their inclusion just because it is still so central to the story. Yes. Right. So with that lovely broad definition. Very, very broad. Of I, under, what I know it could super constitute. Like, it's, it's a very big umbrella. It's a very large umbrella. Or a big tent. Let's throw modern rom-coms and regencies out of our head. Jen's hitting her mic already. And let's go back in time with our invisible time machines. What is your guess of the earliest example of romantic literature? Pamela is probably the mass produced, the first mass produced one, oh, right? right? And right, then right. I know too there are incomplete copies of romance, what they think are romance novels from Greece, and then possibly Egypt. See? A little bit of a history nerd. <laughs> Applause for Jen. But officially, it's Pamela. Pam. Why can't I say Pamela? the word Pamela? I don't know. That Pamela. Was like, wasn't that seven? It was this. Yeah, it was like this. It was one of those like virtual signaling thing. It was supposed to teach you good morals. And, and I it was, think it was um, Georgian era. So 1600s, mm-hmm. early 1700s. I gotta recheck the t- the era. But Put it, it was in like, the show notes. All right. So that was a bit of a trick question mm-hmm. because the word romance when referring to literature, wasn't actually recognized until the 13th century in Europe. Mm-hmm. Then it is a French word, romance, with a U, which refers to a story written or recited of the adventures of a knight, a hero, etc., etc. So long story short, the word romance just refers to something written in the vernacular tongue, aka the common language of the time, and its base etymology. And then it eventually evolved into a very specific type of story. In the 1600s, just as like a brief overview, we started seeing it refer explicitly to love stories, although they weren't really what you know of today. Like with Pamela, it was more of like a trope, I guess you could say. Then in the 1800s and late 1700s, we see the birth of the romantic movement. Thank you, Jane Austen. And we begin to see romance novels that we know and love today. Although the actual term romance novel only came into the English vernacular in 1964. My first thought is, so then what is the difference between some of the things you just talked about and something that I'm like an English courtly love? So none Mm -hmm. of that kind of a thing was a romance or it was? So they would have used romance 
uh, to refer to a story of English courtly love. Because at the time that these courtly love stories, so think, and I'll talk about this, chivalric deeds, Arthurian legends, these were all tales of courtly love. Um, and they would have used the word romance to refer to them because at the time the French style was extremely renowned in the English courts. Okay. So it influenced a lot. Like the French at this, at the like high medieval up through like pre-renaissance reformation Mm -hmm. really led the charge in anything related to like courtly style cool there you go fun medieval fact anna don't yell at me (laughs) okay after the fact jackie coming in here i'm a week older than i was when we recorded this episode um unfortunately because of time and upload constraints we had to cut out um a good bit of this episode i'm gonna be upfront with you and unfortunately that meant that about a thousand years worth of literary history we aren't going to talk about in this episode i originally went into a discussion of egyptian mythology greco-roman history and writings all the way up to the post-roman fall and early medieval period um for this episode today jen and i have decided we're just going to dive right in with a discussion of the early medieval period um, otherwise you guys would have been sitting here listening to me ramble for almost like an hour and a half and no, nobody really wants that. I don't think if you do, let us know, email us ragingromantics at gmail.com. Um, instead we are going to, for now, forego these early examples of romantic literature, such as the mythologies, foundation stories, fables, all that fun stuff. We're going to jump right into sixth, seventh century, early medieval Europe. And the reason for this is because the evolution of romance of the romance novel is very closely tied to the evolution of the physical book itself and the physical book really stems out of the early medieval european tradition what you'll see throughout this episode is that as literature education and access to books and or written works becomes more widespread so too we start seeing more and more examples of what we can recognize as a romance genre as a romance novel so let's go ahead and jump right into the sixth century and post-roman era of europe now roman empire fell like third fourth century fourth fifth century bc or ce sorry fourth fifth century ce (laughs) um and from this we start seeing the rise of medieval europe again i will be focusing mostly on europe and later america down the road because this is what lends directly to the modern romance industry today after the decline of the roman empire written literature grew a little more scant these were the quote-unquote dark ages um and this was largely because writing materials were expensive paper ink the quills the the um they weren't using paper really unless it was handmade they were using vellum which is hide it's a specifically made hide it's all really expensive and a lot of the money in the post-roman and early medieval period existed and was held by the church so literature it makes sense would have been funded by the church it would have been funded by the nobles who were influenced by the church there wasn't a lot of separation of church and state at this point in time basically there was no separation of church and state at this time <laughs> um and paganism although it's still really heavily influenced peasant and rural life and we had probably all these oral traditions and oral stories there wasn't much record of it because the christians kind of bulldozed all of it and again stuff was difficult to come around it was hard to find materials to write with because they were so expensive and i imagine like you said a lot of it was destroyed and a lot of it was adapted into the christian faith to kind of get those converts right 
<laughs> so the nobility, the royalty, the higher class, the merchants, those who could afford the materials and the tutors to learn how to read and write in Latin, because that was still the vernacular, yeah. um, let alone scribes and materials to write with, we're going to be this higher class. You do have old English texts which come through. So we have Beowulf um, that comes through. But again, that was oral tradition that then got written down. And as such, a um, majority of the literature that the nobles were going to get a hold of would have been churchly subject matter because they in turn were directly influenced by the church. I already said this, but I'm just going into more detail. Of course, I'm not saying that the Bible, that the Bible is devoid of love stories, but I would argue that a majority of those love stories have been centered around God and Jesus and Christianity and like that sort of love and creating in yourself not a romantic love, but a faithly love. I don't think that's a word. I think it, it centers on putting God in your life first. Yeah. That's probably the easiest way to put it. Yes, there's stories and the quotes get quoted a lot at weddings. And I can think off the top of my head of like the ones where they're like Solomon. She turned into a pillar of salt. Anyway. The ones who that like, <laughs> ki- like wanted to cut off. that You know what? In a weird way, the one who asked her husband to uh, cut off John the Baptist's head. You know, he liked her enough to do that. That's sweet. There you go. That's instead of a bouquet of roses, bring me a head. Thank you. But I will say we are not devoid of outside Christianity. In Ireland, we have the story of Tristan and Isolt, uh, one of the inspirations for the story of Lancelot and Guinevere. This is a 12th century tragedy between the romance, which concerns the romance of Isolt, an Irish princess, and Tristan, a Cornish knight. The story begins when Tristan, 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 Tristan is sent across the sea by his uncle, the King of Cornwall, to bring him the Irish princess back because she is famed for her beauty and he wants to marry her. Tristan succeeds, but as they begin to travel back to Cornwall, um, they accidentally ingest a a love potion causing them to fall in love with each other Isolt marries the Trish, the Cornish king as planned however every time she and Tristan lays eyes on each other their passion only grows stronger the king's advisors soon take notice and the two are tried for adultery Tristan is sentenced to hanging and Isolt to be burned at the stake Tristan escapes his fate at the last moment rescues Isolt they hide away in the forest but they're discovered by the king Tristan eventually is forced to to agree to return Isolt to the king and leave Cornwall forever. Later, he marries again in Brittany, another woman named Isolt. <laughs> that is not a that good love story. That is such an Irish story right no. there. <laughs> okay, yeah, sure, it's an Irish story, but that's not like... That's I'm just, not going to read that in a romance novel. I will say there's a really good movie with James Franco as Tristan. Ugh. It's actually really good. No, thank you. I can't remember who played the the result. Okay, it's but. James Franco's gross. Anyways, let's move past the oral tradition, get back into Western literature and love stories. And we're going to go to 13th century France where romance finally kicks in. All right. So this, again, is not the romance we're thinking of. Instead, these romances, it's going to be hard to say that so many times. <laughs> I'm not going to take myself seriously. We're all about chivalry, courtly love, and what made a proper knight and a peer of the realm. This was the high medieval era, and so everything was centered around a very specific culture. These romances emulated the ideal hero, and this is a trend where we can start to recognize our romance heroes today and what makes them a hero. Probably the most infamous one, I would say, would be Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, one of my personal favorites. I haven't seen the movie yet. I'm kind of scared to do so. But anyways. It was so good. It was. Well, I don't know, but just the trailer looks good. I like, know, but it's it's by M. Night Shyamalan. And yeah, but Dev looks really hot in it. I know he does. Like, just watch it on mute if you end up not liking it. This is true. But anyways, um, so Gawain, 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 however you want to say it, is set on a series of quests. He is a knight in King Arthur's court. 
Um, and this these quests culminate in him battling the Green Knight who challenged King Arthur's abilities. Throughout the year and a day in which he is set out to battle the Green Knight, he has to travel through all these lands. He's faced with all sorts of moral trials that test his dedication and his task to to his task and his lord, including sexual favors. A woman like comes out and lures him, but he remains steadfast. He remains true. He says, "No, I dedicate myself to my lord. I dedicate myself to this task." These obviously aren't romances as we know of, but... Yeah, that's fair. I can see the seeds. Yeah, the I seeds. I can see, like, the little sprouts. The seeds of a hero. I just feel bad for you that this is only your fourth page of ten I know. I'm trying to notes. talk really fast. I'm sorry, guys. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So these romances... Romance. Were extremely popular in the royal courts in Europe and really represent a shift in Western literature starting to go away from the church and more towards secular writings. And, of course, this leads us where else but to the Reformation, Woo! the invention of the printing press, yeah! the Renaissance, and My obviously the man himself, Shakespeare. Yeah, he's fine. <laughs> Was I'm more he a man? By the, well, I don't care about that. I'm more excited by the printing press. Yeah. Um, okay. Before we really talk about that shift, Jen, do you have any questions about like high, late medieval nope. period of romance? Okay, cool. <laughs> and remember, this is all a gross generalization. So on to the Reformation. Firstly, we have the invention of the Western Printing Press, yeah. a.k.a. the Gutenberg Press. <laughs> the Gutenberg Press in 1450. Um, this vastly simplified how books were produced, and it lessened the cost of printing and distributing works. We had paper instead of vellum being used. Um, a single person could produce a book, whereas it before it had taken a whole um, scriptorium in a monastery to produce like even just a handful of pages. Um, and it in part led to the success of the Protestant Reformation that started around 1517-1521 with Martin Luther. Not Martin Luther King, Martin Luther. And in turn, this inspired the foundation of the Church of England in 1532. Wasn't that more because Henry wanted to... Well, that too. Yeah. But, but he consulted his buddies Because he in really the wanted to sleep with Anne. Yeah. There, there was a whole other lot of stuff going on yeah, in there. It wasn't just the printing it press. It wasn't just the printing press. It, ha- but I mean, it helped get information out, and that's really the benefit. Yeah, yeah. It helped spread information and helped show other people what was going on. I mean, when I say other people, I'm still referring to nobles. I'm still yeah. referring to upper class yeah, I mean, nobody else could merchants. Read. Nobody else could read. Nobody else could yeah. afford these books. These events, these reformations, um, they did have an effect on romance literature and literature in general because it created this rise of secularism, especially in England post-Henry VIII. We all know the story about Henry VIII, his lack of surviving male heirs. We've all seen all the Bolin things out there and the rise of Queen Elizabeth I. Elizabeth's reign was known for her patronage of the arts and especially of playwrights such as the infamous William Shakespeare. But anyways, the English Renaissance, Renaissance, Shakespeare and his contemporaries such as Marlowe really changed the writing and di- distribution game and who was consuming this literature, these plays, who was learning the, who were learning these, was learning. Anyways, you get what I'm trying to say. Shakespeare made romances fun again, okay? <laughs> of course, he had his tragedies, you know, Romeo and Juliet, whatever. But we did get stories like Midsummer Night's Dream, which is all sex and love, and everyone ends up in a happily ever after. And that's all that makes a romance, right? Yeah, exactly. So from Shakespeare, we're going to move forward. We're getting closer to the current day. Don't worry. We're getting there, guys. We move forward into the period of romanticism in the 17th and 18th centuries, especially in English and French literature. Now, keep in mind, this does not mean we're talking about romance stories. This um, period gave us authors like William Wordsworth, Lord Byron, Walter Squat, Squat, 
sorry, Walter Scott. And while these weren't necessary love stories or romance, like I said, we do see some pretty popular trends that shifted the focus of literature away from the elite, away from the nobility, hello, upcoming revolutionary period, and towards more, quote unquote, normal people. All right. Now, if you've been listening to us this entire year and you remember our discussion of the Regency period and what romances looked like, these quote-unquote normal people were still more well-off than your everyday layman. But like in Jane Austen's works, they might have been more of the upper-middle-class side as opposed to those living in palaces and getting their heads chopped off. You know, we're talking about people we might actually talk to in the village. Maybe. I don't know if I talked to her. Jane Austen? Mm, I don't know. She seems like a hermit. I feel like she might... Yeah, I don't think she'd like us. Mm-hmm. We'd be the trollops that she wrote about. Yeah, she would We'd be the ones in the hat shop. We'd yeah. probably die of syphilis or something. I wouldn't die of syphilis. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, um, Pride and Prejudice goes as one of the most infamous love stories of all time. And even though people sometimes refuse to call it a romance, it's a relationship. OG enemies to lovers and it's an HEA. Classic. Yeah, I mean, thinking of... Jane Austen and Shakespeare being considered romance. I can already hear certain elitists yeah. just being like, no, they're not. Ah! Listen, all that it takes to have a romance is H-E-A or H-F-N, happily ever after, happily ever after for now, and the development of a relationship. I would love somebody to explain that to Nicholas Sparks. Nicholas Sparks. <laughs> <laughs> so... Now we're going to move into more comfortable and recognizable territory as we move through the 18th, 19th, and early 20th centuries. Literature, and indeed education, becomes more widespread during this time period. The English Renaissance, and From the English Renaissance and Shakespeare onwards, the increase in availability of literature and the more widespread education and education reforms led to marginalized groups, especially uh, lower middle class women, learning how to read, learning how to write, and disseminating their own pieces of literature. So, too, in the 18th century, we see the decline of literary censorship. During the Revolutionary Period, for instance, in France in 1789, it was declared, I think by the French National Assembly, that the free communication of thought and opinion is one of the most precious rights of man. Every citizen may therefore speak, write, and print freely. In the U.S., it is, of course, part of our Constitution that we have the freedom of speech and the freedom of press, meaning that technically we've never really had literary censorship, although we have talked about gatekeepers many a time during this period the 18th 19th and early 20th centuries we see romantic well okay so really 18th 19th we see um romantic works again still not technically romances but romantic works as the rise of gothic literature and this is the novel that would in turn lead to the format we know and love today satire realism romanticism dialogue think victor hugo mary shelley charlotte and emily bronte these authors that we still recognize as classic today right and even emily bronte and charlotte we would maybe talk about in the romances some like actual romance novels you might not see you might not consider the hunchback of notre dame or frankenstein romances no but these gothic thrillers really lent a new hero into the fold we have the dark brooding recluse that was Heathcliff, the misunderstood outcast with a heart of gold like Quasimodo, the star-crossed lover is not a new theme, but they're stuck on the opposite sides of a revolution with Cosette and Marius, and these tropes and characters that we know and love still come across today. And I know it was definitely something that the British publishers did not want to see because they wanted kind of those moral stories wrapped up nice and neat and they wanted the good people to be purely good and they wanted the bad people to be purely bad. And And to contemporary publishers, this was trash. And look what survived. I know. (laughs) Look what it's like now. Look what is taught in literature classes today, folks. 
not to mention the change in the publishing scene in the 19th century. At this point in time, a whole new era of publishing began. A series of technological developments in the book trade and in other industries dramatically raised output and lower costs, i.e. industrialism but for books. Stereotyping, the iron press, the application of steam power, mechanical typecasting and typesetting, new methods of reproducing illustrations. These inventions all developed throughout the century and often were resisted by the printer, but they amounted to a revolution in book production. Paper, which had been made by hand up through 1800, formed more than 20% of the cost of a book in 1740. By 1910, it had fallen to little more than 7% of the cost of making a book. Bindings, too, became less expensive, and after 1820, cloth cases began to be used in place of leather. So again, we're making it cheaper. We're making it more easy to produce. In Europe and America, expansion and competition were the essence of this time period, and book trade really had a full share. While the population of Europe doubled, that of the United States increased 15-fold. Hello, this is the period of Western expansionism, America growing as a country. Okay, cool. Improved means of communications through the typewriter, the telegraph, the telephone led to wider distribution and a thirst for entertainment, which expanded beyond, which greatly expanded the readership. This led to rapid growth in every category of book from scholarly to juvenile. We're going back to the idea of wider education means wider demand for content means a wider spread. Supply equals demand. Basic economics, which I almost failed as a class. (laughs) The cost of these books really started going down as the cost of production decreased and as readership grew, meaning that the cheaper the publisher made something or the printer made something, the more copies they could get out, the greater, the more copies they could sell, which meant the greater their return on investment. Your eyes are glazing over. You're good over there. Oh, yeah. I'm definitely paying attention. Sorry. (laughs) I'm so paying attention. I love. Yeah. Yeah. Basically, I'm, I'm, I'm getting back into romance here in a minute. Basically, right now, we're just talking about the evolution of, of literature. Bear with me. An excellent example of this popular popular literature is the American Dime Store novel. Yeah. yeah. They were first published in the U.S. from the end of the Civil War, so 1865-ish. They were sensational weekly or monthly installments, technically some of the first serials, a.k.a. series, that focused on romance, adventure, and American idealism. They were also referred to as penny dreadfuls, although this was mostly in England. Because of the cheap price of the dime novel, they cost a dime or a nickel. It's pretty simple here, folks. (laughs) Publishers geared the books toward the uneducated lower class, producing stories with simple formulaic plots that opened, quote-unquote, new worlds to their readers. Storylines were straightforward and told in a physical language that brought to mind concrete pictures and people for their readers. I really wish I could have found like a good example of this description, but I couldn't. Um, pretty much this is where we became really focused on the showing, not telling. Like oh, okay. we would describe a hero. We would describe a landscape. We wouldn't just say there's a green hill. We would use very, very language specific language. To paint the picture. Yes. And it would also be very regional language too. It's interesting that with that kind of a shift, we still had so much controversy mm-hmm. of what is this doing to people's minds? reading this mm. filth oh that wasn't until the 1950s well it's still a little no that was yeah. them too well, there so was a Penny lot of especially yeah yeah there was a lot of concern about what this was doing to women's brains it's because of the sex exactly we can't talk about sex yeah and not just that but like Penis. it might give people ideas it might make us lazy yes. we talked about that in our very first episode yeah. of some of the um, stereotypes i guess or like yeah just the the reasons the non-released first for episode <laughs> of years that's fair yeah no you the, guys never the heard of bias it, against yeah romance and mm-hmm. these types of books were real and also in part it was a classist thing because mm-hmm. they were marketed cheaply the and they class. were marketed towards the lower class yeah that's fair because you get into that like well that's so low like lowbrow and also so think about 
we this was supposedly the end of slavery in America this time period and so we had a whole new class structure breaking out and so well, until they could you yeah, know fix yeah. that well cause... supposedly um so <laughs> until reconstruction ended and all so went back worse. they quote-unquote didn't want to give these people quote-unquote new ideas <laughs> I hate all of this so much but they didn't want to show them what life could be like in a novel because this is why would you show them that they should just live their life and be happy with what they got but it depends because i'm sure none of these publishers were particularly progressive no like they probably did they not were out have for the money exactly like i doubt they were gonna push these new ideas exactly exactly like they were probably just um what word am i looking for like not even Capitalistic? repressing they're they're just showing how people already thought life was yeah you know? idealistic not even idealistic just thinking like all the istics yeah well, just thinking about what you said about, oh, they don't want to show these new people, like, a different way to live. I mean. Yeah. There were no mind games. There was no psychoanalysis. Sure they were playing into exactly what people already thought. Yes. Yeah. Like, yeah. They were going into people's space insects. 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 <laughs> Instincts. <laughs> what you already thought about your neighbors. Because, oh, I mean, I, I am very sad that a lot of these did not survive. But I imagine there are probably so so many stereotypes and gross things in some of these yeah. especially when you get into like the native american tropes and some of the yeah. slave tropes and i'm like mm, yeah. we gotta be careful let's not be like some drawbacks a yeah. little bit yeah. i definitely pushed information that maybe we didn't want out there either yeah so these were like we said they were shorter they were very simple storytelling they were for the less avid reader um they were papers which were published with a bridge version in dime novel like stories so like readers digest um these were shorter brightly illustrated they were about eight pages in length and they were serialized weekly in magazines or booklets this is where like jen said cowboy stories like uh, the cowboys and indians westerns became synonymous with this format romance was high on the list with dime store novels too and these we can really see in these we can really see the rise of the genre that we know and love today women's dime novels typically dealt with romance and marriage and drew on the social experience of readers stories set up the love between a working class girl and a noble and first sometimes the first billionaire novel yep and sometimes told of marriages and betrothals gone awry usually these romantic ventures would end in disaster huh. <laughs> warning the working class woman that the emerging concept of acceptable feminine acceptable female sexuality was in fact unacceptable in these stories virtue was protected at all costs its importance emphasized for the sake of the readers and women were not supposed to have sex oh that's really interesting that that's how it ended Mm -hmm. because thinking about the georgia higher book we read i mean obviously it ended with her you know getting her happy ending getting her man but they were of a similar social class Mm -hmm. so maybe that's the thing you don't want to go above your station you want to do exactly what we tell you to do very classist and and just kind of um repressive yeah, these are the values we want you to have. These are the, the class standards we want you to have. All right. So finally, we come to the birth of the modern romance novel. And no, it wasn't the 1970s, although we will get there. Jen has a mini rant. And Jen, I ask, have you ever heard of Mills and Boone? Yeah. Oh, okay. I have a book about it. Oh, that's right. Okay. Yeah, I got that book. I just haven't read it yet. Okay. Have you heard of Harlequin? <laughs> Obviously. <laughs> I love my okay. Harlequins. Okay. So we got to focus on these two guys for a minute. Mills and Boone is... Um, Mills and Boone is an imprint of the infamous Harlequin Publishing House. They were originally founded, however, in 1908 in London as their own separate publishing place. In the 1930s, they saw the light and started printing stories almost exclusively marketed towards women with escapist fiction. You see, there's this thing called the Depression. 
that had a big impact on the global economy. While money became tighter, cheaper books, and indeed the popularity of commercial libraries, hey! yeah, libraries really grew exponentially. This need for escapism among readers was noted by the publishers who saw the correlation between the quote-unquote housewives and women's stuck at women's wow women stuck at home with their families and they saw an available market and they started pushing for it and then we have harlequin enterprise ltd it was founded in 1949 in winnipeg canadia and it quickly cornered the market on north american romance in the post-war years of the 1950s, when social structure began to be redefined and gender roles solidified, at least in the West, Harlequin joined forces with popular Mills and Boone. These next 10 years of romance history are fascinating and they're defining for the genre. This is when the paperback romance and the typical view of the genre became typified. Typical view of the genre. Well, anyways, you guys know what I mean. Um, Harlequin moved to Toronto and saw its biggest years of sales Ever. They had a gross profit of $7.9 million in 1971, which today translates to, drumroll please, $53,252,437.04. Wow. In a single year. They were killing it. Mm-hmm. Um, we're going to talk next time about how much money the romance industry currently makes. And it's, it's, it's madness. During this time, a man named Lawrence Heisley was appointed president of Harlequin, and it is because of him that we see a shift in the market and how romance was distributed. Heisley had previously been a marketer for Procter & Gamble, the pharmacy place, I think, and thanks to his influence and connections, romance paperbacks moved beyond the booksellers. They moved beyond the general store and the library, and they went into supermarkets, pharmacies, and other unorthodox venues. A lot of the times I saw they were packaged with feminine products so like kotex tissues would have been stacked with a romance novel (laughs) i mean throw some chocolate in there we're good to go guys meanwhile mills and boone in england and the uk was failing to procure this abnormal outlet so their sales were flagging and in an effort to maintain relevancy mills and boone sold out to harlequin in 1971 and that's all she wrote romance became a powerhouse in the publishing industry and companies like harlequin were leading the way then something questionably magical happens in 1972. Jen, would you like to uh, have a little rant about this important point in history? It's not a rant because we're already coming up to an hour. It's all good. But what happens is that the book Flame and the Flowers published by Kathleen Kathleen Woodkins. What a wuss. What a... You know what? I don't want to say your name right, okay? I don't like the book. We had this whole thing because I threw the book (laughs) and I went on a rant and I sent Jackie like 300 text messages over the night because I was so mad at this stupid book. Not an exaggeration. I don't want to beat up on it too much because I understand it was massive for the industry and it really meant a lot to a lot of women who for the first time was... Were reading about like this, this amazing adventure this girl was going on. I just hate it so much. <laughs> so it is a quote unquote bodice ripper. This is literally a bodice it ripper. Is she the gets start raped. Start of the bodice ripper trend. Yeah, she gets raped three times, two times, two times in the first thirty pages. Yeah. It's a lot because again, it's the seventies. For whatever reason, the author decided she wanted a very specific plot where the heroine is going to end up pregnant before she's married. Mm-hmm. So the hero had to rape her mm-hmm. because otherwise women can't enjoy sex yeah exactly women can't especially have especially before marriage women can't want sex before marriage after the marriage then suddenly the sex is great but up until then she was super miserable he Orgasms raped her twice. all over yeah it's this very <laughs> it's this very convoluted thing it's still a plot that resonates i don't know if i want to use the word resonate i'm going to resonate if you know, you know. <laughs> every time but it yeah. was the first time that you see some of these tropes of like they're in one room with one bed 
Uh, it's like a forced pregnancy before dub marriage. Con. Dub con. It's really non-con. Yeah. Um, I guess she... I'm. There have been rapes before in kind of these sort of books, but I wonder if this was the first time it was a really happy ending. I really don't want to read to know. <laughs> I don't want to read either. But yeah, so this was also the first time bodice ripper was used, and it really started a whole trend. And Jen, can you just like briefly describe what a bodice ripper is? Uh, you rip the bodice off. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's a type of cover. Yeah. It refers to the cover of these books. They were, um, I mean, flame like and the Fabio, flower. A little bit. Like, yeah. You know, they're like clutching the man, and like the bodice Swooning. is like, Ugh. and there is usually forced uh, sex in there. It's usually, usually white people. Usually white people it's always it's heterosexual. Usually, the man is usually literally ripping the bodice off because he's going to rape the heroine because she doesn't want to have sex. Yeah. Usually. That's how it started. It has kind of changed a little bit. I think now a bodice ripper is just said kind of sarcastically. Yeah. And it's always a historical. Yeah. It's always a historical. You don't really see bodice rippers in contemporary. Basically, it represents a short and specific moment in American publishing history that it's a cover. That's mm-hmm. all it is. It's a cover. But it came to typify a type of novel. Yeah. Um, it really only lasted between the 1970s and mid-80s. We do still see bodice rippers today, but I think it's more of like a punny. <laughs> it's, pun- it's like there's n- not really this acceptable forced consent. I, no. And now it's, not it's, ex- it's not in mainstream. Now it's used as the in- I forget what the term is, but the inside cover of a paperback. Oh, yeah. Okay. Like where you open the flap up and then it's a bodice ripper picture and tessa dare i was reading at all of her signing one, yeah. hang, hands out bodice ripper repair kits mm-hmm. which i thought was really great that was cute but um and these, it, it kind of shows too that this is going to be a little more sexually explicit yeah. than like pamela was yeah these hyper sexualized novels replace the shorter and serialized novels that harlequin and mills and boone made popular with these more explicit books uh, that were inspired by the popularity of flame and the flower bodice rippers met reader demand and flooded the market with mass-produced I romances mean, it made millions of dollars it really it's did still being published today it's yeah i think um, that's a nostalgia thing at this point but it's not it just made me it made me a crazy person i'm not the same person i was since i've read flame and the flower sorry, not sorry. i'm so mad that you didn't get to read it <laughs> well you saw enough of the experts i did that I, I, did. I never want to read it um <sighs> this is where the cheesy book covers that we associate with romance novels and later the awesome fabio well our cardboard cutout is awesome we can not talk about fabio. <laughs> not the real fabio um came from <laughs> this changing cover style the blatant sexualization of romances and the evolution into a more sexually aware genre really heightened the popularity of romance as a whole of course there are always going to be haters people who classify it as not real fiction or literature because it's quote unquote just smut ham aka because it deals with relationships and achieving female pleasure it's not worth reading i think it's crap i think it helps too and i got into more detail on this in our dark romance podcast so if you want to check that out go for it yeah but there was this idea back i want to say until the 90s even that women did not have sexual desire mm. and that is why you had to force them into these kind of situations because a good woman would not want to have sex this is not true quote. it's not true yeah so this was this was a fun time period for the genre the 70s mm-hmm. 60s 70s 80s because it started exploring its boundaries a little more and it really helped a lot of women authors become very prolific mm-hmm. in the 1980s um Women everywhere were really keen on breaking that glass ceiling. And we see authors like Nora Roberts, Daniel Steele, Sandra Brown, Je- Beverly Jenkins, and so many more publishing bestseller after bestseller after bestseller. James Patterson, eat your heart out. You do not write your own oh books. God, you sucks. do not deserve he the title. He is a sweatshop author. He is. He is a syndicate. Maybe he does the Bill Clinton books, but honestly, I did not Probably hear that Bill they were Clinton. that good. Anyways. <laughs> but um, these women are 10 times the author you will ever be. Mm-hmm. I said what I said. Um, 
Now, the trend still, like, during the time period was historical novels, although we did start seeing contemporary mm-hmm. romances come along. Um, these famous authors like Nora Roberts and Daniel Steele really, like, made this popular. Yeah. And for the most part, they're still well-known today. Mm-hmm. I do want to throw out there, too, the authors were important, but just as much the editors started to change. Yes. So Vivian Stevens is probably one of the most famous editors yeah, Women started getting out there. into the publishing game. Yeah. So when she got in there to the 70s, to the 80s, she was kind of the first one to change the tide of, like, let's make it more career-focused. Let's make them older they're gonna have different priorities than some of these early romance novels i am so sick of like again the rape culture of you know what these women are gonna want to have sex rape they're gonna want to have that's a great way of referring to they're it. gonna want to have these relationships they're gonna have much more intent in their own lives mm-hmm. so she started this imprint called let me double check she created candlelight ecstasy yes and it was massive and it just totally revolutionized the genre and it's changed things she is currently named for the new rwa award so she is romance writers of america which we're going to talk about in our scandals episode yeah so definitely check out the scandals episode i'm already telling you right now rwa is number one in scandals it's a dumpster fire of a place so i think this isn't a good example, too. We keep talking about it's not just the authors, it's the industry itself. Vivian Stevens was a huge, huge voice in making sure we could have a modern romance genre today that and we know and love. it was the start of what we know of yeah. romance today and how we can mm-hmm. be so inclusive, talking about body inclusivity, yeah. like, for example. Finally, we come to the 21st century. Thank goodness we're almost there. But unfortunately, I have to talk about the importance of 9-11. Just a little bit. Just We've talked about bit. it before. We talked about it in a vampire episode in depth. Um, and we go into our theories there. So if you haven't listened to that episode, do so. I we'll will try. list the episode numbers. I know. <laughs> to the audio is pretty bad. I'm sorry about the audio. I will list the episode numbers at the end of this um, so that you guys can go give it a listen to. Give us some new statistics. Um, but here's a brief, brief recap. Basically, when everything went down in 2001, it is mine and Jen's observational opinion that there was a shift in what the readership of romance demanded. We started seeing a trend more towards paranormal romances with stronger heroines, leather-clad heroes, vampires, werewolves, and really strong, like, world-saving plots. Historicals remain decently popular, but contemporary romance, and especially that paranormal stuff, truly begins to shine. Authors like Sherilyn Kenyon, Christine Feehan, Karen Marie Monet, um Suki Stackhouse I can't, author Charlene Harris. Charlene Harris thank you they really their romances begin to feature much more of the sex and grit and it's what becomes really popular yeah it kind of I don't want to say it dirties it up because that it grits it up yeah it grits it up I think that's a good way to put it they have you still have like the really strong central love story like always but the heroine's a little feistier the plots are more dramatic and important and I think it kind of ref- reflected that escapism we were really desperate for in the period. It's literally escapism because it's mm-hmm. paranormal. Like, these creatures, yeah. unfortunately, don't exist. But it's set in the modern world, so you can yeah. kind of picture it. It's very much set on Earth with kind of worldly rules to an extent. Obviously, vampires are not real. I'm very sorry, Jackie. You're going to have to find a different sugar daddy. Sorry! <laughs> <laughs> no, I want I want Kieran from the Highlander books. From Karen Marie Monet. Oh, that one? immortal highlanders mm-hmm. anyways um then and, everything shifted again with yeah. 50 shades so really paranormal did not have a long lasting period no, unfortunately because we had to come to 50 shades of gray in 2008 but you know what i don't mind it so much no i have to admire what it did yeah it's changed um, a lot and we did a whole room a whole month again devoted to this book so go mm. give those a listen for more in-depth yeah. analysis we go into everything um in summation though this book arose out of paranormal trend it's twilight fanfic in 2008 and it changed the way romance was published it really did 
because E.L. James was so specific about everything from cover design to editing to representation, she didn't settle. She refused to publish until she found an agent who agreed with her vision Mm -hmm. and hyped her up into a completely new market. And she wasn't even marketed as romance for a long time. And we can say what we want about how crap the book is. Sorry, not sorry. But I have to admire James for her dedication. And, you know, it wasn't even so much the BDSM aspect and, like, the erotica leaking into mainstream romance. It helped bring up e-publishing. And that has been such a game changer for romance in general is this really strong indie space where it is easy to get the books, where it is accessible to most people to get these books and where authors can directly sell these books to readers. They don't have to cut through the publishing houses as often. And this popularity, this shift in romance culture with the rise of BDSM and spicier contemporary books. And by spicy, I mean, there's a lot of penis on there. Mm -hmm. Um, We have even more rom-coms coming out we see more and more inclusivity and then i'll be honest something happened in like 2012 2013 with romance books and i can't quite put my finger on it but something happened and there's a shift from historicals especially medieval and cowboys and again from paranormal and more into the contemporary realm and i think new adult has something to do with this Mm, maybe and so i really don't know what happened there but we see rom-com so contemporary in, in women's fiction to some degree as the predominant romance trend. And I know I kind of sprung this on you, but no, it, and okay. I don't have I'm an thinking, answer. I'm thinking about the years. I don't know if I want to agree with you on the years. Not quite 20. That's when I became aware of it. Okay. I mean, I noticed that there was a lack of cowboy a long time ago. Yeah. Again, we know I from didn't the cowboy. because I, I read all the cowboy. Exactly. <laughs> we know from cowboy podcasts. I'm not a fan of the cowboy stuff. So maybe I just missed it. And like the medieval stuff feels like it was over much earlier than that. And there's still so many historicals. But I think the historical market now is centered on Regency. Mm-hmm. I don't see a lot of stuff outside of that. Even it's even like Highlander stuff. It's yeah, hard to it's find. Kind of gone out of the way. And a lot of the Highlander stuff I am seeing is like this paranormal twist. Yeah. Where it's time and travel I will or say it's that like ghosts. Now I'm really seeing an influx of fantasy romance. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's because I'm reading it more and it more could be. Aware of it. But I think because that is directly related to the to how easy it is to publish that stuff on like yeah. Kindle Unlimited. Yeah. And we're going to talk about modern publishing trends, the influence of social media next time because TikTok has changed yeah, the game. Yeah, and that's really recent too. Yeah. And it's interesting it's within that... the last year. But that leads us to Romance Today, which is a whole nother episode. Yeah, because you already spent an hour on this one. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> but next time we are excited. We're going to sit down with Leah from Ripped Bodice Bookstore in Los Angeles, and we're going to talk about what the genre looks like now, the diversity, the inclusive, inclusivity, the bias against the genre, where we think it may be going, all that fun stuff. Obviously, I love talking about theory of romance and where it came from and the history, and I'm going to try to start sprinkling some more of this in, I think, because I like the psychology stuff. Jen is, like, staring me down right now. <laughs> it's not that I'm not interested. It was just oh, a lot for an hour. It was, <laughs> and, oh, my God, I know. And honestly, I glazed over so much if you can believe it. But, um, just as you were. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, I think that's all. Do we have any final housekeeping we want to talk about? I want to say thank you to everybody who listens. Mm-hmm. I love really you. sweet of you guys. Thank you. Jen, what do we always say? Great job! Thank you, guys. We love you, and we will see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.